Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's going on, dude? That's one hell of a profile picture you've got there. I almost want to just say, just click that on for the whole interview. <laughs> oh, I can, I can, I can do that. Hold on, I usually have it. <laughs> Let's see. It I've got my. Is a bit. I've got this live, you know, Peter Doig background, but well, uh, I mean, it's obviously way better seeing you. But let's. <laughs> Fat Beatles. Is that what that is? Incredible. Yeah. And I mean, I, so at the top right there. Who I know that's Paul at the top left. Who's that top right? That's Ringo. 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 <laughs> Incredible. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I'll try to find the image so you can actually. So see good. It. See, these are the things that bring us joy in these times, man. <laughs> yeah. Sorry for everybody listening to this. You're missing out here, but it's worth are it. We, are we already alive? Right, well, I put it all in, yeah, but this will only be on audio form. So, really, this is at this stage just for my enjoyment. <laughs> can I even drag something into the chat? I don't think I can. Anyway, I love it. Well, good to meet you, man. Good to meet you and the yeah. Fat Beatles. What a backing band! Good to meet you too. <laughs> What's going on? Are you back in? You back in Toronto? I've been chatting to your uh, your your colleague Ali. Um, uh, yeah, no, yeah. we yeah, my my wife and I uh, were in. LA for eight years and then yeah. moved back to until we had a kid in January. And then, um, you know, the, uh, there's a lot of compounded, uh, issues with Los Angeles, given the current, uh, the current, um, state of affairs. So we, uh, we decided to move back in the, in the summer and made our way back in the fall. And then we haven't really been, I'm saying this because you you said Toronto. We haven't really been in Toronto. We were in the burbs where uh, where we both grew up, living with family, and then we bought a house in the boonies, um, like two hours, two and a half hours northwest of the city, in a village. Uh, so that's what we're doing now: village life. Well, it's funny. Totally, Everybody totally I know different. has been doing the same thing. I'm doing the same thing. I'm in the house where yeah. I grew up. Um, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was in London till August and um, I'm like a DJ by craft, if you can call mm -hmm. it that. 
Um, that's where I make sure. the majority of my income. And so obviously like mm-hmm. yourself and everybody else in this industry, my, my income was ripped out with this thing. So I did a couple of months and, you know, scringed and scraped by, and then, mm-hmm. yeah, it got to summer and I was like, what's the point in paying, you know, extortionate London or in your case, LA rent as much as anything, like when, yeah. when everything's yeah, yeah. shut, all the, all the things that make those cities special are currently shut. And I yeah. guess with LA in particular, um, I've got a few friends who left last year. It was just by all accounts like madness out there, right? With the protests and everything as well added to it all. It just looked like a fucking post-apocalyptic wasteland from the outside looking in. There were a lot of layers, you know, you, you live there because it's, um, it's beautiful and there's opportunity and there's stuff to do and there's restaurants and there's all this stuff, just culture, you know, in the, in a metropolis. Um, and the, the wildness of a city, um, you know, you like to, especially after a certain age, you like to keep it at bay. Uh, I, I remember when we, when we lived in Toronto, uh, a friend of mine, uh, and I bought a house in this neighborhood that was, um, you know, it was, we, we were kind of the, whatever, whatever battalion of the gentrification, the artists and musicians are, we were like that battalion where it's still kind of rough and you can, you can buy things for cheap well for what you can afford, not for cheap, um, because it was expensive, but, uh, for us, but we bought a, a house and built a recording studio and, but that, the neighborhood is still you know, it was pretty rough. Um, Whereabouts was, were you in LA? No, this, I'm, I'm talking about Toronto now. This is, right. this is a number of years back, but uh, all this to say that we were, um, you know, it was this neighborhood that's in transition between, uh, between two, uh, two eras. And I was uh, walking one night and there was a couple who had just eaten in this really chic restaurant that just popped up, you know, was, and uh, they're, they're, their car window was smashed and they're like, how could this happen? You know, we read a review of this restaurant and this is such and such magazine. And how could this happen? Because this is the city. <laughs> yeah. That's what happens in the city. Frontline um, gentrification, isn't it? As, as you say, where the two worlds are harmoniously sometimes, but sometimes even not harmoniously coexisting. Yeah. It's a funny balance. You know, we, when we moved into that neighborhood, um, you know, you move in because you can, you, you can afford it. Uh, you, you've got space and you can make some noise. And then the next battalion that comes in, uh, they're like, it's too noisy here. <laughs> like yep. get these musicians out of here. Well, that's how you get venues closing down and pubs is, you know, they, they put up the, the high rise flats next to these, you know, historical venues or like cool yeah cool bars and originally and and, you know initially it's like oh this is a hip area let's move here and then they're like oh no we want to make it residential now we want to take away what makes it cool and and make it safe and sound and then you rip the heart out of the thing it's yeah we we played uh like that though aren't they it's i mean i have a song on my on my second solo record um that the chorus is if the city don't change if the city don't grow where where will the new people go but if there's a constant turnaround and actually, you know, as controversial as gentrification is as like a topic, no one can argue that there's a fine balance, you know, in, in, in those neighborhoods and, and the people it's like, you know, if we're speaking specifically about this neighborhood in Toronto that I was living in, um, it was culturally, you know, split kind of Portuguese and Vietnamese. Um, and they both had, you know, their businesses, but the businesses that were, that were, um, you know, maybe not as reluctant to the, to the slight shift that was happening demographically, they did really well. And they're still there. There's this, uh, there's this Vietnamese restaurant, um, called golden turtle in that neighborhood that just, uh, and there's two, there's another one down the street, but I was, I was a golden turtle guy, but they, that family that runs the restaurant, they just, loved it you know the neighborhood people were coming in they were people were eating out every night uh the family was going to vegas you know three four times a year and they'd come back with bling and we watched (laughs) the kid we'd watch the kids grow up and um you know the portuguese baker in the corner same thing you know they they did well and and if if you roll with it you know no one there can argue that it was that it was a bad thing that uh that suddenly families were moving in and, and, and things like that of course, it, it gets to that point, you know, we, one of our first shows in, in, uh, in New York, or maybe like 
third or fourth show early on, um, we played this venue called the Knitting Factory. It's a famous, famous venue. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I, I was, uh, as a young man, kind of obsessed with Jeff Buckley and, and it was part of his lore. And for me to get to play that venue was, was incredible. And, uh, and it was one of those things where there was a hard curfew, there was a decibel limit and, uh, you're in the middle of this neighborhood that, um, you know, you're loading out your gear and there's a, a woman in Givenchy walking her, walking her dog into an entrance to the doorman. And you could tell that that, that moment in time was about to, to tip one way, you know. I mean, this is the stuff of life for me. I find it fascinating. And, you know, the last mm-hmm. year has been so challenging for so many reasons, but I'm not even in a curious way, just in a, well, it's going to happen this way, but to see how the world will change coming out of this, especially cities, um, you know, they've changed so much in this thing, but they haven't really changed so much as just been like, hit, like pause has been hit. Um, do you know what I mean? The shutters have come down, but the flux has sort of stopped for the last 12 months and it's just yeah, been static. Yeah. And I, I'm going to be fascinated to see moving forward how it all begins to, you know, either rapidly change or, I, I mean, it, it just blows my mind, this whole experience. Yeah, I mean... I had a bit of a fear uh, living in Los Angeles where we lived. We lived in Silver Lake, which is, you know, pretty, pretty chill neighborhood. Um, nice neighborhood. And uh, great neighborhood. And we had a, we had an amazing apartment that we never intended on leaving. You know, we intended on paying rent there forever because it was so beautiful. And um, the view was of downtown. So you just saw the LA skyline, which is very, became very Blade Runner-esque, especially after, uh, after a very tense summer and, uh, and, yeah, you um, had the fires as well, didn't you? The fires, and uh, we were um, in a helicopter route, so so it was just basically choppers just buzzing the buzzing the sky, just constant all night long, constantly, and uh, and until about July fourth, um, I think July fourth was a bit of a, uh, a cathartic moment for uh, for LA, but uh, and usually is just because they just start blowing shit up. Um, but there were fireworks, intense fireworks and, uh, and explosions every night for, uh, and siren that was super intense, super intense. Um, but watching the skyline, I kept thinking how long before the commercial real estate, uh, situation, you know, before these people, uh, whoever they are, these, these, uh, these financial groupings that buy these massive buildings and, and, and fill them with businesses, you know, how long before the, the rugs pulled out underneath them and they start defaulting and, and what happens when a city, when a city's buildings drain out of tenancy, you know, what happens then? Um, what happens when that uh, big shiny thing, all those obelisks become, uh, become vacant, uh, I just had this weird, you know, this very, especially living in LA, it's it's very Blade Runner. It can get very Blade Runner at times. It got pretty Blade Runner. And I thought, you know what? I don't want to see this through. Yeah. And obviously with a daughter on the way, is it a daughter, sorry, you said, or a son? Yeah. 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 Daughter. Yeah. yeah I mean, with, 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 well, either with a child, full stop on the way, that's kind of the last place you want to be. Do you think you'd have felt differently if that wasn't the case, if it was just you and your wife? Would you have stuck around to see how that situation panned out? Do you think? I know it's a hypothetical uh, it, question, but it's possible. There was also a great sense that we were um, that we were just basically consumers um, because the future was so opaque. Uh, we didn't know when we'd be able to work again, um, and you know, I I just spent a year making a record. I wasn't making any money i was just spending you know uh spending money making a record was this the death um, from above album or a solo album or yeah death from above album yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so is that self-finance uh, was it no it wasn't self-finance but um you've got no income because you're not touring etc we're not touring and uh you know i i took on the most of the work of, of production and, and mixing and all that stuff and so um until that was off my plate, I couldn't, you know, go out into the world and do anything, uh, anything to make money. So, um, yeah, just for me, because I took on that role, it, it created a bit of a ditch in my, 
in my yeah. finances, which is in- totally fine. Freezes, yeah. Yeah, it freezes, and and when you're expecting to go and 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 fill that fill that ditch up, uh, you know, once the once the things out in the world, then uh, it, it's different. But then we ended up sitting on the record for another year. Uh, so, yeah, it got it it got to a point where you're you feel like you're on vacation. You know, and you're living in LA. The weather's incredible. The view's great. Uh, you're on vacation, but kind of. You know, nothing's open. You can't really do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was that. And then, so I, I don't know if that would have been different um, without the child, but but with with the child, um, with all the travel restrictions, we were just, uh, she wasn't getting any contact from pe- people, you know, and, and we weren't able to see our family. Uh, and so, you know, your, your priorities shift in that sense. You want to... Uh, you want to incorporate your your family and 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 people into the, into the kid's life. So, yeah, made the tough call, but also it it uh, the second we decided to do that, the future became far less opaque um, because bet. we took we took action, you know, and we and we and we made goals for ourselves. But that that was a very strange thing. Uh, I don't I'm not like a goal setting type person, but being in the field I'm in, there's this there's even though rock and roll is a bit precari- precarious in general, um, you know, there's a, a bit of a sense of security. Like I know that I can make a record and go out and, and play some shows. And uh, I'm not talking about in a careerist way, but just knowing the future is kind of knowable, you know? I, yeah, uh, I can completely relate. You know that there's, you know, in some way you can hustle an income. You know that you have the tools and the skill set and the, community of people around you to get out there yeah, and, and yeah. bring home the bacon and not not even moment. that just 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 the you know having something to do you know something a purpose uh, a purpose in life and uh and something that has great meaning to you um knowing that that is uh, is in your future is uh um it's just you get used to it and then without having that reassurance you know um uh, it was a very strange feeling. I'm sure, and I'm sure, you know, many, many people can relate. You just could not see the future. There's no way to see it. Um, and so us taking action, moving uh, back to Ontario, uh, we ultimately buying a, buying an old house, um, which is a, uh, a Pandora's box of things to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's no lack of, uh, you know, there's no lack of, of things. Well, there's, now, some, yeah. there's something to be said as well, man, for like moving back to, to where you grew up to, to bring up a family. Like, you know, it's, it's that cycle of life, isn't it? And reconnecting and starting again. And, you know, it all feeds into it. And I know so many friends that have returned to sort of the areas where they grew up over this time um, or even before the pandemic, when they're thinking about starting a family, they want to be near their parents because, you know, you want the grandparents around. And there's just something about it. Is your wife from... Um, Canada as well where's she from she grew up uh here she grew up in in the same suburb I grew up in but she oh, was born in born in South Africa from Polish parents so wow. very much uh very much Polish uh culturally and uh and your and, yeah, dad was English we, right my dad's English yeah yeah He's so you London. got you got it all going on got it all my mother's French Canadian and my father's yeah my father's Brit uh and then we've got the hard polish situation amazing have you been out to poland a lot uh yeah yeah we 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 go out we try to go out you know at least every every couple of years to see uh my wife's fathers uh went back there a number of years ago and started a a new family so we go out there to visit him and and all of her aunts and uncles and and stuff i love it whereabouts is it they're based where are they um, kind of near near the Czech border, up in uh, like Bratislava and uh, been there, yeah, uh, yeah, Kaspach and spelt uh, Rock Claw, right? <laughs> yeah, Rock Claw, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I did. I did a month in Poland, like twelve or thirteen years ago, and I just uh-huh. and we went like everywhere. We did like Gdansk, Jeshov, Lublin, Torun, all over, not mm-hmm. just Warsaw and, and Krakow. And yeah, we went to Rock Claw and uh, yeah. just had the best time. The food's amazing. The people are super yep. cool. We went there in the dead of winter, so it was just like covered in snow everywhere we went. Mm-hmm. 
an amazing country. Yeah, beautiful. Big fan. And still, still, uh, the first time I went there, it was, um, it was kind of still, it felt like before H&M had arrived, you know, so uh, the style palette was still very much a unique thing. It was still, uh, this is only in a matter of a few years, but the, um, the feeling was that it was still very much like Eastern Europe, you know, know and, yeah. uh, and I was, uh, you know, wearing skinny jeans and, uh, and, uh, cool, the, you know, jean jacket and, uh, whatever, you know, I was, I was like, hip. you would have been turning um, heads is what would have been I was, happening. I was, I was getting, I was getting called very specific names in the town square <laughs> from uh, men uh, yeah. with shape, with uh, cropped hair and uh, and football jerseys. Well, so. that's the thing. The guys out there, you would not want to mess with them, man. They're a different breed of yeah, tough. Yeah. That said, <laughs> two years later, I went back and it was just like everyone yeah. was wearing skinny jeans and had uh, had emo hair. So, yeah. Yeah. They're like, hey, there's that guy. He was the first one, the trendsetter. Yeah. 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 There he is. It's like the God returns. Buy him a gyro. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Dude, I want to get just jump in on this brand new record of yours. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm loving talking to you, man. It's already a joy. So thank you for coming on the show. Um, is for lovers. So I was looking up the origin of this term because I thought it was this. Are you familiar with the history of it as, um, you know, the, the kind of marketing tourist travel? slogan for virginia yeah yeah yeah. well it's it's definitely i i um it incepted its way into my mind uh my father the business he was in um the uh the american counterpart to his canadian business was in virginia was in virginia beach so we would go there every summer and um because it was a write-off we could sit in a hotel on the beach for very very cheap for you know three or four weeks um while my father continued to work um so yeah i'm i thought i was you know i i didn't quite know how it popped into my mind um but uh i'm sure it was that (laughs) yeah it's it's that kind of subconscious thing right and it's funny because it's obviously now a term which is part of like colloquial phrasing and it's one of the few like there's so many sort i guess i I would call them like internet phrases right it's one of the few that i really like a lot of them just annoy me because they just i don't know they reek of insincerity and i think a lot of people nowadays kind of use this language that you know used to actually mean something in quite detached ironic ways if that makes sense i don't really know whether i'm explaining it well but you know like for instance a phrase like i'm here for it people like to say that now i'm i'm here for it i'm here for it uh, like, oh sure sure yeah sure. but i doubt you actually be here for it if it you know the crunch kind of crunch time yeah came. one of the was... one of them that i heard recently that that it um i started to review how many times people have used it on me and i'm going maybe they were being maybe they're condescending to me the whole time it's this phrase, my dude, like, what's up, my dude? And like, blah, 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 my dude. You know, it's almost like the clapback yep. uh, emoji. Um, you Drives know, I me mad, was, that's another one. I thought it was, I thought it was people like, I thought it was kind of a fraternal or, you know, whatever it is, a, um, uh, like, I thought bro, it was an, inclu- an inclusive term <laughs> or whatever, but it feels really much like condescension. Uh, you know, there's, there's a moment, um, I kind of got sick of irony and I try to, you know, I'm still infected with it. Um, it's hard to, to shake, but uh, there's something so cynical about it. And yep. um, this kind of, this kind of postmodern irony that I thought was cool for so many years, you know, um, and with, with the all due respect, you know, it's kind of a Julian Casablancas style of, uh, frontman irony where which i got a, a great kick out of for many years where you know you'd see him at a festival and he'd go so you guys like music you know you guys like music like kind of taking the piss out of the audience for attending a festival for you know three or four days and just watching bands and bands and bands and bands and that's kind of a nightmare for a musician to just like watch bands all day um so him being on stage saying you like music he's not saying like Music is great. Don't we love music? He's saying, ha ha ha. Yeah. Why would you love music? You know, this kind of weird postmodern irony that um, 
like I said, I used to get quite a kick out of it. I still do to a certain extent, but well, there's something I just so cynical then, about it. When that movement that you're talking about happened, I think there mm-hmm. was, a, you know, it, it was a reaction to what had come before as everything is, right? And so at that time, I think there was this sort of sarcastic cynicism there, but it was also from an authentic place. Whereas now, I feel like the authenticity isn't so much there. And so it's kind of cynical and detached and like ironic, but then it's like, but then the passion isn't there and they're not passionate yeah. about it. That's what I feel like. And I don't know whether I just sound like a grumpy old man saying that, but yeah, I just... you're, we're allowed, we're allowed to be grumpy old men. Yeah. Well, we're, we're getting there, right? We're getting there. <laughs> 100%. Once you see it, once you see the, the thing go around a few times and you start to see the, uh, you start to see through it a bit. Um, you know, that's, I think part of our job um, as humans that maybe comment on culture or observe culture or engage in it, participate, um, you, you need to, to keep it healthy. It needs to be, light needs to be, you know, shined on it. Um, and you can't really, you're so in it when you're 20. Um, you can't yeah. possibly see it for what it is. So you need the guy that's double 20 and that's still in it to go, wait a second. Yeah. But also, I don't know, we were, we were uh, recording this thing a few weeks ago and uh, there was an engineer in the studio with us and he was 22 or 24. And uh, instantly Jesse and I are just giving him all kinds of advice. But it's like, believe me, I wanted cool guy like me to go back into like if i could you know the whole phrase you know what would you tell yourself if you you know your 20 year old self you had the opportunity to go back in time it's like you know that happens because old guys will often tell young guys you should do this this and this that's actually you in the future coming back to tell you you know yeah very bill and ted-esque i never had that and i'd love it i mean i'm i'm always drawn towards older people always have been my whole life more so than people even my own age let alone younger um, you know, I can never really be bothered to hang around with anybody younger than me. I just don't have the patience for it and never did. But there's always wisdom to be imparted. I want to quickly pick back up, backtrack a second. Mm-hmm. Are, are you someone, because obviously I know just from like your music and hearing you in interviews and seeing the fat Beatles behind you, you obviously have a great, you have a great sense of humor. And it's, it's hard sometimes because I think you can mix sincerity and being real with obviously taking mm-hmm. the piss as well. Um, and yeah, I wanted to just backtrack on that because you were sort of talking about the, the whole irony thing, which is in you and, and, you know, unshakably so, um, Mm -hmm. over time, how's that evolved in yourself? Uh, uh, well, if I can contextualize it to the band, um, when we started, uh, you know, it was either, uh, you know, small kind of punk shows or, uh, a little bit later on opening for bigger bands and we're a weird band. We've remained a weird band and we have a weird sound. Um, and especially at the beginning, um, you know, I mean, we're still way too loud. That's part of the thing. Um, but uh, we need to defend ourselves and we were kind of going into battle at every show. And especially when there's proximity to the audience, there's kind of like you're a threat to them. They're a threat to you. Uh, if you're opening for a, for a bigger band and, um, and, and we come on first and they're expecting, you know, whatever, whatever it is, my chemical romance or Billy talent or whomever we open for um, and they get us, maybe it's not what they want. So we were uh, you know, my humor was defensive. Uh, we were combative and uh, and then when we would play, it was just like heads down playing very uh, aggressively. And um, that was kind of a survival tactic. And as that evolved, um, and it wasn't, it didn't take that long for, for this to happen, but um, whatever humor exists on stage in the banter, um, it's meant as an inside joke. It's like, we're all, whatever the parameter of the room is that we're playing, like we're, this is the party and we're all 
part of it. So if I'm saying some nonsense on the microphone, um, primarily it's to make Jesse laugh and then, and then, but also to create a sense of like, let's have a laugh together, you know, um, let's enjoy this space and, and together. And, and I'm never trying to, uh, uh, even when I'm calling someone out in the audience, I'm not really trying to, uh, you know yeah yeah yeah. it's like i've seen that happen too you know you've we've all seen footage of uh of of uh poison tongue musicians call out um audience members in in a way that maybe they never recover from be be Um, they innocent or not right there's sort of like a line you can maybe go to and still retain that sense of like friendly and approachableness and then there's just the full-on like whoa i wouldn't be fucking heckling that guy after what i've just seen yeah yeah yeah. um but there's also it's it's dangerous you know because um we're not comedians um and music isn't comedy and I think there's, you know, there's like this weird symbiosis between musicians and comedians um, that, uh, you know, I've, I've, I don't want to say I've gotten into trouble, but you know, I've, I've definitely gone on tangents live where I've felt like I've had the permission of a George Carlin, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm not Richard Pryor, I'm not George Carlin, I don't have those those credentials um and it's not scripted either right it's in the moment and so it's in the moment yeah the joke doesn't always land and yeah as you say you might lose track of the thought the thought process might get away from you and it's yeah it's real it's like improv and that even if you're a comedian improv can either work or not right and so if you're not a professional comedian you're taking a gamble i mean some of my some of my most uh proud moments in music are when something joke wise really land like i've had a few where it was just i started a thought and i went on a rant that lasted you know four or five minutes and there was a punchline at the end and then we kick into a song and it's like people are like going crazy with laughter and then they're so excited about the song like maybe if i listened to it back it would have been a terrible joke but for some reason it really worked in the moment you know and my memory of it is this is this uh transcendent uh comedy genius it's probably sucked but i don't want to review it it's like yeah well dude nothing punctuates a thought or a speech better than a song like i used to work in radio and you know the idea of like in the link you're going down a certain street with what you're saying and then at the end of it you reach the conclusion of that you know sentence or paragraph or idea bang punctuate it with you know a strong intro to a wicked tune it's amazing And then people, as you say, they're like, oh, this fucking song's awesome. And they appreciate and enjoy it that much more because the lead-in has led them right up to that sweet spot. Yeah, we were doing a, uh, we're doing quite a bit of radio right now. And we did a a morning show, you know, like this morning zoo with three or four different hosts and and us. And uh, one of the guys is just that personality where he's like, everything is a segue and everything is a punchline or just like perfectly timed, you know? it's such a skill. It's incredible to have that skill. I mean, that's the skill of a, of a comedian or, or an orator, you know, you're able to uh, read the room, follow the conversation, absorb whatever heckles are happening and then come out with a definitive. Wow. Yep. (laughs) One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, mean Streets, dude. I think one of my favorite introductions in cinematic history is Robert De Niro's Johnny Boy as he enters that bar. The camera pans down in slow motion. Jumping Jack Flash is playing. He's got a woman under each arm. Bam. Such an iconic moment in cinema. I love that you referenced that in Mean Streets. Um, are you a big De Niro or indeed 70s movie fan? What's the the thought process and inspiration there? Um, definitely a yeah, big, big fan of, of film and 70s film and Scorsese and, uh, you know, De Niro up until at least Heat. Uh, yeah, there you go. Before he starts is, doing Meet the Fuckers and <laughs> anger, uh, all that and... all that stuff is fine as well. But uh, you know, he's still like cool and got a good body and whatever looks cool. You know, um, did you watch The Irishman? I did. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> you, I'm. I was you know watching that scene when like he's an... trying to beat up the guy at the convenience store. I know, it's like the most unconvincing old... fight scene ever. <laughs> It's insane. I mean, the thing with like they keep they keep uh, patting themselves on the back for this technology that 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 made Robert De Niro maybe seven years younger. You know, it's not like <laughs> they're like calling him kid. It's like, dude, he's you're literally seven. You've got a uh, I don't know, like a six and a half percent wrinkle reduction. Yeah. There's no, you know, your body is stiff. <laughs> And he's got like weird, his eye tone was different as well. Like the eyes went blue. Um, yeah, they both yeah, just yeah. did. I mean, it was all right, but the, the kind of hype that that movie got, I was like, I, I enjoy, I enjoyed it. I, I, you know, I just, I didn't like how they were trying to convince us of, of one thing, but I, I liked it. You know, I watched it. Harvey um, Keitel was the best part about that film for me. He was fucking great in his little part. I think I don't, I don't think he's ever been bad in anything. Um, yeah, I love those movies. Mean Streets specifically, you know, in the context of this song is another thing. It's just, it was kind of incepted. Um, and it was just a kind of a, a free association song, clearly because I went and inserted a, like a Bad Brains or Crass song in the middle of it. Um, I just kind of let that, let that song uh, flow out of me. And so lyrically, you know, I haven't even watched Mean Streets in, in maybe 15 years, 15 Amazing. or 20 years. So, um, and yeah, I probably should watch it now that we've got a song called Mean Streets. I should probably go well, back. It's like and the watch Virginia thing, right? It's just percolating. And you must, you know, as an artist, everybody has those things, right? That are just, mm -hmm. you, you see something and it makes an impression on you. And, you know, mm -hmm. m maybe it doesn't get used for two decades or whatever. And then one day mm -hmm. it just fits with, with where your head's at. It's interesting you say crass. I went to, um, one of the coolest things I've done, and I, I want to go back soon when it's a bit safer too, but Penny Rambeau from Crass lives mm -hmm. out on this beautiful little commune, like the original commune where they all start yep. abandoned band stuff. Yep. and stuff. I, I went out there to spend the day with him to record one of these, and it was just mm -hmm. just the most blissful, peaceful, amazing place I've been. We spent all yeah. day talking about Werner Herzog films, and he's like, you've got to come back, man. Uh, we well, yeah. didn't say man, but he said you, sh you should come back sometime. And um, oh. yeah, it's been something I've been wanting to do, but obviously he's of a certain age and the last thing you want yeah. to be doing at this moment in time is being around, you know, older people. But Sneezing on an old man. What yeah. a, yeah, I love... a spot. Were they an important band for you growing up, like artistically? No, not, not growing up. Or... No, none of those things. Uh, they're, um, they're a band that my wife loves, so... I looked into them so that she would think I, I was cooler. Um, <laughs> hey, but I, I, we all just I, want to be loved. <laughs> I did. I developed a, uh, a real strong love of, of uh, a number of their songs and definitely their, their energy. Um, and their aesthetic is incredible. Uh, and yeah, it's not, they're not like, um, I'm not putting them on every day. 
but yeah. you know I, like i said at first i listened to them so that my wife thought i was cool and did it uh, work? i mean she thinks i'm all right <laughs> she stuck around <laughs> we're having a family together things are going yeah, okay. yeah we've been we've been together for 16 years or whatever so amazing she thinks i'm cool enough yeah, um, man. yeah my, we have this little uh my wife had a magazine um for many years and and we would attend the uh new york art book fair or la art book fair and at some point we picked up this book about penny rimbo um like a little biography uh and it's sitting in my in my kids on my kids bookshelf and every now and then i turn around she's reading about penny rimbo just like <laughs> He's, a, he's right. a very wise man. He's got some amazing records where it's just him reading like Wilfred Owen war poetry yeah. Um, yeah, over, yeah. over strings and really emotive music. And he's got this great, rich, deep voice. It's, it's what I love about that, interesting uh, about him, you know, he's certainly um, evolved into this sage and, and maybe he always was. But from my understanding, you know, he was kind of the rich, the rich boy in Crass. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Steve Ignorance um, very much the working class guy and Penny's almost like the hippie, like the kind of posh middle class hippie. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, I, I forget where I where I heard this. Maybe it was a documentary about about them or something. But mentioning that, you know, the drummer is always kind of has to be kind of well off because he needs to a afford a drum kit or he or she and b have the space to, to make that kind of noise. You know, um, I can relate to that somewhat. I grew up um in the suburbs but in a semi-detached house so uh anytime i hit a drum i was brutalizing somebody <laughs> so i was always kind of very self-conscious about um the amount of noise i was making because i was being i wasn't being told to shut up but certainly there were um, people banging on walls and floors around me so yeah how about your other partner how long have you guys been knocking around together now you and jesse <laughs> Uh, it's been about 20 years. Um, we met in 2000. Uh, the first time we played, he was still living with his parents um, out in the east suburbs of Toronto. And the first time we played together, um, he invited me to his house, his parents' house. And he had a like a jam room in the basement. His father was a musician as well. Um, so there's tons of gear and uh, and he had this concept for a band where he tuned his guitar down to a B, like the, the E string was down to a low B. So it was this like really floppy, droney sound. And uh, he had all these crazy amps that he plugged in and he was playing and it was the loudest thing I'd ever heard. And he kept telling me to play louder and harder he's like harder harder hit harder and i until that point you know i i'd never played in that way um i never tried to hit that hard i was like hey listen to this ghost note you know it's like no ghosts it's like pure zombie full fully materialized human monsters um and we uh we're literally knocking things off off the the wall upstairs like we went upstairs and his mom was kind of dusting plates off that had fallen off and picking things up and she didn't seem too bothered by it she's a pretty um pretty stern and domineering woman but um but also kind of understood that maybe her uh insane son needed you know at least part of what he was doing down there to be to remain sane i can vouch for that i know that he needs uh he needs to be loud he always had a wild energy about him did he was he always like kind of plugged into something yeah yeah he's he's a wild person yeah he's definitely um he's he's uh in theory mellowed out um you know having two daughters uh um I think he uh, he developed a great deal of patience, which maybe he didn't have so much of before, um, and more compassion and understanding. Um, but he's still an insane person, as like measured and balanced as he appears to be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs>
he can but just we're, control yeah. it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, uh, it's been good for me as an artist because um, uh, I'm, uh, I take more time with things. Um, I need more time with, with music and art. Uh, and I need to have a lot of personal time with it. And he, we're at a point where we, we trust each other um, kind of to a fault. Uh, and this record is an experiment in how much we did trust each other because um, we made the music in about five weeks together in a room. Um, and I just got as much of him as I could on, on tape, on tape. And uh, on laptop, actually, this laptop I'm using now is the, the whole record was made on this thing. So, um, but uh, I got as much out of him as possible. And then I, I took that and turned it into Is For Lovers over the course of a number of months. Um, and he really had to trust trust me. And, uh, but, it, but also, you know, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I had, to, I had to trust him that he's going to, he's going to give me something uh, out of his fingers that will inspire me to do the next thing and, 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 and push it all the way up the hill. So um, our, our roles in the band are, are far more well-defined now than they ever have been. And, uh, and it's a really good balance for me, you know, right now. Yeah, it's, it's very good. I love the album, man. And, you know, it's funny because whenever a band goes out to talk about a new record, obviously they're going to say this is the best thing we've ever done, um, you know, because I don't think any band's going to go. The first album was actually the best we did. And then this is like the fourth best. Um, but mm -hmm. but check it out anyway. But this is my favorite album you guys have done. I think you sound as complete like the the whole aesthetic that you've always had, I think just sounds as well realized on this record as, as any that have come before it. Um, mm -hmm. I think you just, you sound like you're fucking honing and firing from all cylinders. Um, you know, and everything is like dialed in to the best of its ability. And I just think the songwriting's amazing. The performances are great. The energy's great. I, th I thoroughly enjoy it, man. I've listened to it like five or six times ahead of chatting to you today. And every mm -hmm. time there's like new things to appreciate and, Big fan, dude. I think you've done Thank a great you. job with it. Thank you. Yeah, it. Um, I agree. There's a there's a uh, a uh, actually a Scorsese related anecdote that I like to I like to uh, add to this kind of comment where Please I do. um I saw uh man I'm why am I always forgetting blanking on this guy's name uh I'm gonna sound like an idiot but the actor in in Goodfellas, uh, uh, Ray Liotta. Ray, sorry, Ray Liotta. Yeah. So Ray Liotta, uh, you know, I'm betraying myself by forgetting his name, but I it's love all Goodfellas. Good. The story's so still going to be killer. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing, <laughs> nothing not to love about Goodfellas. But I saw Ray Liotta on a, on a late night talk show a number of years ago, and he was promoting uh, some Christmas film where uh, there was some, you know. Uh, computer generated snowman involved. And uh, I, I think maybe he was that snowman. I'm not sure he was definitely a father in a, in a nice brick house in this film. And he went on a, a late night talk show and he had the gall to say that it was maybe the best thing he'd ever done. <laughs> <I'm> thinking, <laughs> Dude, there's no way that that's true. And there's no way that you believe that. Very difficult to believe that that's true. Um, so I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be Ray Liotta. Um, but that said, um, it, it's definitely the the record that um, you know. Personally, I was the most most involved in. Even uh, the first LP we made, I didn't know anything about recording. You know, I knew about four track cassette recording, but I didn't know about a studio. Um, we made. We made most of it in a uh, after hours in this great studio in Toronto that doesn't exist. That's now a condominium. Uh, got torn down not long. It was a studio uh, called Chemical Sound. It was in an alley behind a strip club um, in Amazing. Toronto. And when we were kind of between takes or having a cigarette, 
sometimes the strippers would be out back in the alley having a cigarette too and you'd kind of like commiserate like you know it's a work a day world you know just another day on the job um and yeah that place is now condominiums um but we recorded there after hours because our, our buddy al who made that record with us um he worked there um he did the first full we, length as well right yeah yeah the first, this is what I'm, I'm referring to and uh and uh because we were concerned with you know maybe damaging equipment or uh you know i wasn't allowed near the console i couldn't even breathe over it so um i would kind of stay at the back of the room and when it came time to to mix the record um i just had no ability or knowledge of how to do that and so i kind of you know i stepped back at that point um extremely proud of that record and it's there's it's un unarguably um a uh i'll just say it it's a great record and it's a document of that of that time it's a record of that time um but as far as um like exercising a full creative vision this would be the record that 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 actually happened on um yeah it's I, for me. It's like the hyper Death Row Above record because we were not um, influenced by any really any outside sources, and there were no voices telling us to fix anything or change anything or suggesting anything. Really, um, it was really just kind of a heads down, uh, follow instinct, like go basically autistic in the studio um with you know uh, a level of obsession and, and passion and love and focus that you can only do i can only do really like when i'm left on my own yeah i get that yeah and you know i think that you've obviously worked with some incredible people and, and had the chance to mm -hmm. observe and learn from them and then it's almost like when you're left unsupervised with this kind of skill set that you've amassed along the way that's when you can just lose yourself in, you know, the, the absolute craft of it and, and bring what you really want to see in your head to life. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's something, uh, um, I'm a, you know, pretty sensitive person and, uh, and, uh, generally pretty, uh, polite. And, and, um, when I'm in a room with somebody, when we're, when we're making music, um, I'm not that assertive uh, because I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'll, I'll take, uh, I'll give the other person the benefit of the doubt, let's say. So. Um, and when there's only two of you, that can obviously present problems, right? Well, well Jesse and I, it's a non-issue where, you know, our, um, our dynamic is, uh, is, is, is pretty secure and there's, there's nothing that he, that he can offer that won't be, you know, received by me or or vice versa I'm, I'm speaking more when we're working with with an outside producer you know oh, yeah. and, and as you said it was a, a great privilege to work with dave sardi and, and eric valentine and i learned an insane amount from working with eric the nature of my role in the band is i have to spend a lot more time with these guys because you know there's some songwriting there's singing there's takes there's blah 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 blah, blah you know um and also I lived in Los Angeles and Jesse was still in Toronto. So he would fly in for his part and then I would remain for the rest of it. And, uh, um, but like, let's say we're, we're trying to come up with some cool thing for verse two. You want to add something, blah, 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 blah. Um, knowing that these, these people are, are such strong writers. And I mean, Eric Valentine's an incredible musician, um, he seems like an amazing engineer. dude he just seems like an amazing yeah, dude. Ama amazing guy um but to be able to actually um write uh, if we were in the same room together i would have to leave the room i couldn't sit there in the room and like work it out because um the nature of my personality i'd probably just go oh, yeah that's good dude and then we'd you know his thing would get on the record so i would like if we had to do something i would go okay and get a guitar and go in the next room or you know this is how much of a privilege it was go in the next room and write something on Stevie wonders piano. <laughs> wow. Cause that's what was there. Um, so that happened. So that happened. Yeah. yeah. Most yeah. of the melodies on, on, uh, outrageous now were written sitting at that piano. I would have my laptop up on 
this grand piano up on top of it and I would sit there with this track playing and singing something out and then trying to figure out melodically what would be better and playing on the piano and recording it into the speaker of my laptop and then going into this little vocal booth that was it was a guitar booth that was built for slash it's called slash house and i would go into slash house and then sing it out through uh the laptop um mic and then see if it worked you know so like kind of muck about with voice and piano figure it out on the piano record on piano tried in voice bring it out on my laptop play it for eric and and jesse if he was there and see if it works if it works you know turn the mic on and do it for real um and that was a really that's a really great process too i wouldn't ever um ever trade that in insane experience to have had um but my formative years in making music um was borrowing a four track from a friend or the school i went to and then just sitting there all night making music and uh multi-tracking the, the sound of you know being able to double my voice or do a vocal harmony or something like the four track was a uh almost psychedelic experience for me when i discovered it and then um staying up all night either alone or with friends making a thing and then listening to it 20 or 30 times and falling asleep and then waking up and listening to it and this kind of obsessive uh i don't know just this whatever it is it's, it, it's uh that spirit of um of creating in a vacuum uh to the point of exhaustion is my my natural state artistically I, I get so, it. Man. Yeah. yeah. Hyper focus, hyper focus, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And so th this is the record where I, I was able to do that, go back to that mode and just sit in a room with something for as long as I needed to and obsess over it, but not actually not in a way that was, uh, not in a way that where anything was really ironed out. I don't think because you can, if you, if you overwork something, you can ruin it. And that's not the case with this record. I don't think it's overwork. It's just, um, I don't know. There's a level of detail in it that, uh, that I was able to achieve that, um, can only achieve in, in, uh, in the darkness, I think. Well, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful untamed beast. Um, you know, just because it sounds great, it doesn't mean that it's like structured in that sort of formulaic sense it's it's not that it's everything you'd want a death from above album to be you know it's wild it's untamed it's unpredictable it's raucous it just happens to sound fantastic as well i love it dude um we got to wrap there the hour's up i could talk to you all day hopefully we can do one of these in person one day I want to ask you this yep. to finish off is that a um a rumblefish tattoo on your arm is that a reference to that R rusty james yeah rusty james yeah. hell yeah I've got the uh the motorcycle boy where is he there he is fuck yeah amazing yeah oh man i got these done in london actually um yeah i got them done in london what a movie mickey rourke dude he's my number one dream podcast guest he's my favorite actor of all time yeah he's incredible yeah I, this movie had a huge huge impact on me massive impact on me yeah so i i keep it i keep it close <laughs> yeah I love it. I've loved talking to you, Sebastian. Thanks for your time, Likewise. man. Likewise. Yeah. Thanks for thank the music. For, uh... Thanks for stimulating conversation. And um, yeah, man, all the best. Congratulations on a great record, great career. And I hope that we can have a beer and, and do this in person one day in the new world. At any time. You take care, dude. Have a great day. Okay. See you, bud. Thank you. See Bye you now. in a bit. Bye-bye.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.